Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, <laughs> this feels, this feels The safe. moment you decide. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, uh, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Always edit. <laughs> so this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian, no, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, yes. and, uh. I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Grace and peace to you from A History of Christian Theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim. This week, Tom Velasco, Trevor Adams, and I will be discussing the thought of Irenaeus of Lyon. Although originally from Asia Minor, which is today Turkey, Irenaeus was probably born around 130 and died in 202 in Lyon, where we get his name Irenaeus of Lyon. Marcus Aurelius was probably the emperor around the time that Irenaeus was bishop in Lyon, and he had recently massacred many Christians in Gaul, including Irenaeus's predecessor in that area. This is also roughly the same time that the man we studied last week, Justin Martyr, was martyred by Marcus Aurelius. Due to his thorough cataloging of Gnosticism, Irenaeus is frequently studied by scholars of all different sorts. Irenaeus wrote this book that we will begin this week uh, called Against Heresies. It is divided up into five major sections, uh, the first two of which we will dis discuss this week. What is often overlooked is his own unique theological contribution. We refer to him as Orthodox, though he might not have used that term for himself. He is the first to talk about the canon of truth in Greek, or what is translated into Latin as the regula fide, the rule of faith. This canon of truth for Irenaeus is what he believes emerges from Scripture, the Old Testament, and is the first principle to a proper way to read Scripture. What is the canon of truth? As far as we can tell, the canon of truth is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Father, born of the Mar Virgin Mary, suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, and resurrected on the third day, who then sends the Holy Spirit after his death um, to the apostles. Basically, the Old Testament was written through the Holy Spirit to foreshadow the coming word of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the meaning of the Old Testament. The Gnostics read the Old Testament and think that it tells the story of a different god, a demiurge, who created people to be like the propater, or highest god, without the propater knowing. So matter is bad as it was created by this lower form of god, uh, the demiurge. For the Gnostics, Christ saves us from the demiurge and brings us into salvation through a very special gnosis, or knowledge, where we get the term Gnosticism. Irenaeus and Orthodox Christians reject this reading of the Old Testament. Irenaeus would argue that without the rule of faith, we would not know that Jesus Christ is the meaning of the Old Testament, and it would be misread, as it is by both Jews and Gnostics. And this rule of faith we receive from the apostles of Jesus, passed down to the bishops in an unbroken succession, an unbroken tradition. In these first two books, Irenaeus does his best to show what the Gnostics taught and how they acted. It appears they tried to take money for their teachings, 
of the fa of false doctrines and would often turn their communion tables into sessions of sleeping with their female followers. That's enough for now. Let's turn to our conversation. This week we are experimenting with doing an hour-long podcast. Let us know what you think on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. So the of course the overarching theme of against heresies and there is a longer title this book uh, on the detection and refutation of the knowledge falsely so called um, and he seems to take all of basically he goes through different kinds of Gnosticism um, only sort of to say that they all have one heir and it's basically Simon Magus. And then they're all in the, his day connected to Valentius. So he's kind of interesting. He gives us a nice little genealogy of various different kinds of Gnosticism. But then it, it's all as if to say, because they have one heir, they're all wrong because their one heir is wrong. Their one heir is wrong. Their one common uh, ancestor is wrong. Which for our listeners, Simon Magus, of course, is the guy from the book of Acts. Uh, what is it? Chapter uh, Five, know. chapter six. Peter runs into Simon the magician in Samaria, and supposedly he works these wonders. And he sees Peter uh, giving, you know, laying his hands on people and imparting the Holy Spirit. And he says, "I want that gift," and he offers money to Peter to get it. And Peter says, "Your gift perish with you." And then, of course, the end of his story in the Bible is positive. He apologizes. He asks Peter to pray for him, that he could be forgiven. You know, it's like positive. He's a convert. But it seems um, like our second century accounts now show us that he started to declare himself God. Yes. And completely must have done it out of selfish gain. Yeah. Yeah. Which, for sure, Irenaeus isn't alone in this. That is a common belief about, or from the first and second century, that Simon Magus went around proclaiming himself to be God, um, which yeah. actually... He did in the book of Acts, prior to his baptism and conversion, he had described himself as the great glory of God. Um, but uh, it's clear here that Irenaeus does trace all of Gnosticism back to Simon uh, Magus as if he was the guy who started it all, which I don't, I don't know that there's any reason to believe that's actually true, um, but that's what they say. I personally... It seems it seems that Gnosticism arises out of two basic Greek schools of thought combined with Christianity, Maybe. which is Platonism and Pythagorean kind of the Pythag the the, myst the mystery cults that grow up from Pythagoras, like a combination of those two with Christianity, and and even some Stoicism as well. Yeah, there's a lot of philosophies that. Yeah, do. yeah you're right. There's a lot of philosophies that 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 pour in. I those mean, the were, use those of, are the three I was going to say. Yeah, yeah Pythagoreanism. Platonism and Stoicism. What's interesting, um, just, I mean, I had never put this together until you just said it, but thinking about the life narrative of Simon Magus, you know, sort of being a Gnostic, converting, and then at least as far as we know from these secondary texts, uh, lapsing back into heresy, it maybe it sort of provides a paradigm for understanding why the sin against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin or some of these like, you know, some of the difficult passages in Hebrews where they're very, uh, I guess it's Hebrews nine, right? Where uh, they talk about six. like what six, 
Yeah, six. And, you know, so where there's this like really difficult, some of the hardest stuff for me, we've talked about it before, I think, but some of the hardest stuff for me when I was a young Christian was like thinking through, you know, could I lose my salvation? You know, maybe if they're around these other Gnostics that kind of go in and out of uh, the communities that are connected to the apostles, you could see why they had such harsh words for them. They wanted them to stay and not fall into what is, you know, theological error or not, you know, uh, and falling into a misbelief about who Jesus Christ is. That that sort of provides me a little bit of comfort rather than like when I was reading those, I just used to think, well, if I send too much, then I'm gone. Yeah. I'm I'm not saying that. I mean, I'm, I'm extrapolating. There's no re I mean, Hebrews doesn't mention Simon Magus. Hebrews isn't even clearly written against Gnostics. Um, you know, but it just maybe is a broader issue in the early church. Maybe that kind of thing was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was a motivation or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good insight. Um, I think it'd be helpful really quickly to briefly as much as I, which I think we can do explain the basic Gnostic mythology that he lays out, which for our listeners, this takes up, the vast majority of the hundred and whatever number of pages that we read, it's him laying out this really complex Gnostic mythology. And he identifies his main Gnostic opponent, it seems, as Valentinus, who was an early uh, Gnostic uh, theologian, uh, a leader of a Gnostic community. He identifies several offshoots uh, from Valentinus's group, as well as several, he mentions actually some groups that are not Gnostic at all, like the Ebionites. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mentions the Ebionites, who are like a uh, a Jewish, a, a Judaizing community, so to speak. That is, a strict adherence to the law was kind of their uh, their main um, kind of diversion or divergence from Christianity. Uh, but the mythology is basically this. I'm going to really quickly sum it. It's they believe that there was like an almighty God the, that they, they give some different names to, actually several names to him. They call him the Propater or the First Father. And basically from him came a few other gods. Some of these gods were direct offsprings of his kind of thought or his mind. One of these served as kind of like a wife, a mother, if you will. And then from them come a whole series of gods, uh, which he doesn't call them gods. He calls them eons, Mm -hmm. uh, which is like an emanation from the God. Um, And so there's like, and he, he identifies 30 levels of eons. So think of this as 30 levels of gods. And in each level, there is a uh, a, a sexual pair that is a male and a female. Just like the Egyptian religion. Yeah, so there's a male and a female, and then those that male and female, so to speak, uh, give rise to a new eon, a new emanation, like another god coming from them. At the bottom of this list uh, is Sophia, or wisdom. And it's funny because the names he gives to all of these gods are Greek terms that relate to... Um, various abstract ideas in Greek, like Sophia, like noose, which means mind, logos, which means word. Um, But Sophia, she is in this weird state because she wants knowledge, but she can't have it. And I, it was really hard to follow him, but basically 
the material world breaks off from her tears. And then from this is created the Demiurge. And the Demiurge is the lowest god. And in fact, this god is so low, he doesn't even have a spirit. And according to Valentinus and many of these Gnostics, this Demiurge is the creator of the world around us. And he is the god of the Old Testament. And it's really important for everybody to understand he is bad. Maybe not evil in the strict sense, but in the Gnostic sense, he is ignorant. He has no spirit and no knowledge. So in that sense, he's evil. And the, the, there, one of the previous eons, one of the higher-ranking gods, who he identifies ultimately as the Christ, decides to come and save the world from this demiurge. Um, and so more or less, the Gnostic story is that the Christ, which is a higher-ranking god than the god of the Old Testament, intervenes to save people. There are a lot of different ways he intervenes, depending on the mythology, but on on the view that he holds up as Valentinus's view, the Christ finds the person Jesus, and he possesses him like a spirit might, like a demon might possess somebody. He controls the person Jesus until the end of his life, and then he leaves the person Jesus, right as Jesus is about to die, which is unfortunate for him. <laughs> Jesus dies, and then the Christ, because he liked Jesus so much, he raises him from the dead. And so that's on the Valentinus view. And it's interesting to note um, a couple things, one of which it's almost by accident that the Demiurge even comes into existence. I mean, you know, whether it be the tears of Sophia, I think it's some of the accounts she actually sort of creates him. Um, as a way to try to gain some knowledge, there's maybe more of a pot, like a a rationale behind it. Uh, well, I keep saying he. I mean, it's um, creation. Um, yeah. Is it a he? I don't. I don't know if he identifies. He interestingly, the, it seems these Gnostics really, they really uh, gender is a big deal in these in these <laughs> definitions. Yeah, right. He identifies. <laughs> Some is female, some is male, and he decides some is male-female, like a, a mix. He doesn't say hermaphrodite, but he says like uh, a masculo-feminine uh, being. And it might be that the demiurge is a masculo-feminine. Yeah. And, the, you know, the other thing that for each name that he gives them, um, it, it, sometimes they go through long sections of naming different aeons and angels um, which there are 365, which relate to the, uh, uh, I guess, a solar calendar, right? Um, yeah. Because that becomes a big issue um, when um, Irenaeus wants to sort of debunk Gnosticism. But all these names are very convoluted, and they relate to parts of the Old Testament, which, as Tom says, is not strictly speaking evil, but is negative. I mean, it's an, it's at least an accident. Um, and, uh, and, and these just painful sort of genie to me, painful, uh, genealogies, uh, of, uh, because you're going through the different sort of sects of Gnosticism, which are coming up with their own, uh, unique takes on a broad story. You may, yeah. And you may even say the Demiurge is kind of supposed to be evil because as we've introduced Gnosticism in earlier podcasts, uh, the physical world, right, is evil, and material world is evil. And so, essentially, this idea is that this highest God is the furthest thing from physical, and through these eons, through these, like, 30 generations of God, we just get 
less and less pure and closer and closer to the material world. So that's, that is kind of the idea is you have a spectrum from the greatest to the, the least, whereas, whereas the material world is the worst. Yeah, the word that, that um, Irenaeus keeps using is defect, that, that the demiurge is defective. Mind you, this is not what Irenaeus believes. I want to make this clear to everybody. This is what the Gnostics, primarily Valentinus, who's his first guy that he identifies, this is what the Gnostics believed. And there are a lot of variations. Um, but this is what he's preaching against. Um, and, and the big thing he keeps, the word he uses is the, that on the Gnostic view, the demiurge, the God of the Old Testament is defective. Defective. And I think it's interesting to note that uh, we talked about Simon Magus from Acts um, and apparently it's the same with some of the other Gnostics, but that they are doing all, they're giving you this secret knowledge, this mis- mysterious secret knowledge for pay. Um, and that seems to be a big issue for uh, Irenaeus, for Peter and Acts, um, is that they are trying to sell uh, whatever this crazy convoluted story that they can come up with. They're selling it to people. Um, and apparently uh, some of the other, you know, it's, I think it would be hard to say. I think some historians might criticize the church fathers and say that they're trying to make the story worse about the uh, Gnostics than may actually be the case. But at least from Irenaeus's view, they're selling this esoteric knowledge. Um, and then often uh, in order to take money from the w- wealthy wives of upper class Romans and then sleeping with them. And Which he so means, that's a, a really important point. He highlights that these people are definitely seducing married women and sleeping. Like, it's a key thing to their religious kind of background, uh, is that they're using their theology to seduce women. Right? And it's hard to, like I said, from a historical perspective, I don't know if we could actually say whether or not for sure this took place. But again, it's to me, reading some of this stuff, the closer that we read, the more that we read from these early texts. It, it, to me, it helps me understand the New Testament better. Like so often what is tied together, heresy um, and not living, uh, you know, in, a way, in accordance with what Christ commands or what the Old Testament lays out, you know, the Ten Commandments, these sort of things. The way that you live matters as much as having your theology straight because it apparently when the Gnostics would teach what they would teach, they would teach things that didn't follow um, the Orthodox view. And then they would also take money from people, exploit people, um, sleep with them, and show no concern. Actually, that's one issue with the Gnostics. Once you reach a high enough level, morality is sort of uh, – they talk about three different divisions of humans. And um, and the highest level of these Gnostics is morality no longer matters. Um, so you can do whatever you want. It actually yeah. kind of reminded me of Scientology a little bit. but <laughs> I, I was about to say that it would be like someone writing – this reading this is kind of like someone explaining maybe Scientology uh, in a book, but doing it so well as to show you how ridiculous it is. Like trying to actually get all the details in, like L. Ron Hubbard did this and then he did this, and actually being accurate, but doing it in order to show you, you know, how crazy it all sounds. And that's kind of how this reads. It's, it's like he's giving you the most thorough explanation of all this. And at the same time, like, halfway through making fun of it. For example, like, when he's talking about Sophia and the world being made of her tears and the water, the like, the oceans being made of something else and 
he says something like, oh, well, we all know that maybe it was actually from her sweat. He offers as like a joking critique <laughs> because he says, because, you know, tears contain salt and, you know, that wouldn't help make a world or something. Like, I don't know. He, he just kind of makes fun of it as he's going through and it's this... Well, he tells one story where the gourd coexists with the power and then the gourd and super vacuity, uh, you know, become the cucumber, which produces the melon. Um, and, you know, he just he goes off and, you know, says it's so ridiculous that, you know, nobody could, you know, uh, in a, with a straight face, believe it um, unless they were being manipulated, as apparently the case was. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I think I've been wrestling back and forth mentally with this, trying to be fairer to the Gnostics in my mind, trying to think, you know, I I could see somebody reading this basically and saying, you know, Irenaeus is just, he's just unloading all of this vitriol against a different religion. And he's probably made up a lot of these stories. He probably doesn't really have a good idea of what these guys believe. And the reality is, is much of what we know about Gnostics actually comes from Irenaeus. So it's kind of hard to say for sure uh, exactly how authentic what he's describing, uh, you know, or I should say how well he's actually describing their practices and their beliefs. But I would say a few things. As I was reading this, I, I, I'm realizing the, the people he identifies, they just sound megalomaniacal, meaning they sound like these guys who are so concerned to draw a following and to, to be practically worshipped as a god. Um, and, and, and as I was thinking about it, I was like, well, historically, there just have been a lot of people who've done that, right? I mean, I, I was thinking, I mean, when I was a kid, there was the Bhagwan in Oregon who stylized himself a kind of god. When I was in high school, there's David Koresh in Texas. I mean, you always have these guys, Charles Manson back in the the uh, 70s, you have these guys who think of themselves as gods and who teach people and who are charismatic enough that they get a following. It's not that odd, actually, to have people like this. And there, the second thing that this made me think of was, have any, did you guys watch uh, the John Oliver show? Uh, oh, I haven't. Yeah. yeah uh, what is it, Last Week Tonight or something mm-hmm. like that? Or um, anyway, in one of his most recent episodes, he really hammers on the name it and claim it preachers, which frankly, I actually recommend. I mean, it, it was great. We can um, link it on the blog. Yeah. Um, it was a really excellent little excerpt, um, in which he identifies these guys who are clearly trying to develop a following just so they can get money, right? He, he, has this, he, he shows a clip of this one preacher who is preaching to his church saying, yeah, I bought a $20 million jet. And he goes, but it's for the Lord's work, and, and I've trusted God in faith, and he provided it. And you know what I did? You know, he goes on and he says, you know what I did just to prove that it's the right thing to do? I went out and I bought another $20 million jet the next day just to prove to everybody <laughs> This is, you know, and I don't know if it was 20 million. It was multiple million. I can't remember the exact number. But it was just, these are guys who are preying on the weaknesses of people and just trying to get money from them. So to what degree, I don't know. I, I, I found what Irenaeus said to be really believable. Uh, the way he describes this, the intimate detail, it seems like he is really addressing 
just some horrid practices from these really, really vain, corrupt individuals who are just trying to lead people astray. And similarly as well, kind of on the other hand, but complementing what you're saying, um, Peter Adamson makes this note in his podcast, uh, The History of Philosophy, uh, Without Any Gaps. Uh, when he does this episode involving these church fathers, he talks about this text against heresies. And one of the things he mentions is, um, while probably part of the motivation of Irenaeus for writing this exposition was his just kind of moral um, grievance with these guys, just how he really felt what these people was, were doing was wrong. Uh, I guess moral indignation would be what I meant to say. But there's also, I think, an element here where these guys were respectable enough to actually write all this out. They were, in the sense that, not respectable, but in this respectable in the sense of these guys were obviously a, um, like a, they were a worldview offered at the time that was convincing enough to the populace and sounded enough like the Christian's own worldview to be convincing people who probably would be normally Christian to come over to their side. So there's definitely uh, some competition here. And these guys were taken seriously, probably because they sounded so philosophical mm-hmm. and sounded so, you know, platonic and stoic and all these sorts of things. So it seems like he's offering such a critique because yeah, this was a worldview that was definitely contentious at the time and mm-hmm. was taken seriously by the society. So, well, and I would add to that too, you know, when you look at ancient, when you look at classical societies, when you look at Hellenistic society, when you look at Roman society, you do find several different forms of paganism. And actually ancients uh, as well, ancient Mesopotamia, you find different kinds of paganism. I mean, we often just refer to paganism with one blanket sweeping motion. But there are a lot, I mean, paganism is a really broad category. Within paganism, and really by paganism, we, I think, just mean all non-Christian, maybe non-Jewish religions, yeah. <laughs> you know, non-Judeo-Christian religions. Or Abrahamic. Uh, Abrahamic religions, yeah. maybe. Um, you have distinct veins that are um, what we would call licentious religions, meaning the religion made sexuality and sexual practices a core of their worship. And you had aesthetic, or not aesthetic, ascetic religions, meaning uh, religions that instead of focusing on pleasure, focus on deprivation, like that is starving themselves, fasting, beating themselves, um, you know, an ascetic group. And what you find, and Irenaeus mentions this in these different groups he brings up, he says that there are some groups that are of the licentious flavor, that is, they seduce widows and and they seduce women and wives to come and sleep with their leaders. And then there are ascetic groups that are the opposite. He mentions a group, for instance, that said that marriage was evil and that sexuality was evil because to indulge in sexuality would be to gratify the pleasure or yeah, to gratify the flesh, which matter is bad. So it's funny because he identifies both kinds of groups and it just makes me think, you know, another thing that's believable about his account of Gnosticism is that, is that it's not just that these guys are forming religions that make sense a little bit in light of Christianity, but they make sense in light of their own paganism. So it's like a mixing of Christianity with paganism. That would just be, I think a very appealing thing for a lot of people in that era. Well, and I would add, I mean, one thing that I thought that he was sort of doing, 
um, if if you if you take it uh, at his word, and apparently you know the word of Acts, these guys were selling this knowledge. So if he goes out and tells the whole world what they're selling, they can't make a profit anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty simple and it's pretty ingenious. Look, you don't need to go get the secret knowledge. You don't need to pay them. You don't need to be anywhere near them. I'll tell you what they think. Um, I'll tell you what they say. Here it is. Um, and so I take that to be pretty ingenious um, on Irenaeus's part. And it also seems to me that, um, you know, he wants what the Christians believe to be very elemental and, and available for any to know. Um, and so it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not too difficult to understand. I mean, we'll get into the age when uh, Christian thought gets very complex, um, you know, the very difficult ways in which we talk about the Trinity and Christology. But I think there should always be a simplicity, a backbone of simplicity um, to the Christian faith. Uh, and I think that Irenaeus wants that to still be the case. I mean, he repeats at several places what he calls the rule of faith, um, which is an extremely important term uh, in the history of uh, Christianity, which seems to be something like Jesus came down from heaven as God, was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and was resurrected. Um, it's a sort of very elemental form of the Apostles or Nicene's Creed that he repeats. And he says, this is available for all. We're not hiding anything. There's nothing mysterious. There's nothing behind closed doors like the Illusion Mysteries, um, like the Gnostics. And today you might say like Scientology or like Mormonism, or, well, at the LDS church, they have some secret things that only some people could know. He wants it all to be available, which interestingly to the people that critique the early Christians, like i.e. Bart Ehrman, Bart Ehrman actually is doing something similar to what Irenaeus is doing. He thinks that Christians are trying to hide stuff um, in the seminaries or things about the history. And he thinks he's doing exactly what Irenaeus is doing, which is I'm going to tell you what nobody else will tell you, um, which is what Christians have kind of done all along. They've never wanted anything to be in secret. Yeah. It's so funny you bring that up. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a movie or read a book or something along those lines where they mention some just undeniable piece of evidence that completely undermines the Christian faith. And then in as a key point to a plot or to part of the plot line or the storyline, they are, you know, the Catholic church is trying to snuff it out, right? (laughs) They're trying to prevent anybody from finding out the reality. Uh, I remember watching a movie once. I can't remember the name of it, but somebody found an old text and the text read, I'm not joking. It said, the kingdom of heaven is neither here nor there. It is not, it does not come with observation, but behold, it is within you. And in the movie, from that point forward, the Catholic priests have this like secret underground police uh, group that are trying to kill people with knowledge of this text. Whoever made this film didn't realize that is a direct quote from the from Luke uh, from Luke twenty one. I mean, it is insane. the The truth is, is at the end of the day, we've always known all the critics. There's there is nothing. I can't. I mean. People post on Facebook, the Catholic Church doesn't want you to know this, or Christians don't want you to find this out. There is nothing coming out that we are not aware of, right? Um, The Gospel of Philip was released, uh, what, like three years ago, which is just one of many Gnostic texts. 
It says that Jesus married Mary Magdalene. People are like, oh, Christians are going to freak out because now the undeniable story has come out. No, that story has always been around, <laughs> right? We have known about it forever. Oh, and I apologize. That wasn't the Gospel of Philip. It was the Gospel of Judas. Uh, the Gospel of Judas was recently discovered. It mentions that. The Gospel of Philip is an old Gnostic text that we've always known about that says the same thing. That was kind of my point. But yeah. Well, and so anyway, yeah, I, I actually take some of what we're up to in this whole podcast to be something of a of a similar vein that Irenaeus is doing. I mean, not trying to expose Gnosticism, but also to just lay out we just want, you know, we want to investigate so that, you know, that anyone can listen along with us as we go and see what Christians have been saying for 2,000 years, because it's not a mystery. It's not a secret. It's there for anyone. Um, and it's, you know, so, you know, you don't need Dan Brown. You don't need Bart Ehrman. Uh, you don't need Elaine Pagels. There's, there's nothing that we have to, we're not hiding anything. <laughs> All right, we could turn more to the text, but... Okay, so that was book one, basically. Well, before, we, we leave, just... before we leave book one, I wanted to... One of the things that fascinates me about Gnosticism, and one thing that I've been trying to work out, that we work out a little bit every now and then in the podcast, is a theology of Scripture, but maybe even more specifically interpreting Scripture. And he, uh, we get an interesting contrast between Gnosticism and um, Orthodox reading of Scripture, and he, he uses this image. Uh, he says that imagine that there was a skillful artist who had a figure of a, of a man and a king, um, uh, specifically a king. And then someone takes it apart and uh, takes apart the image of the king and forms it into a dog or a fox. And then he tells everyone this is a king. And he says, and he will fool some people who have never seen a king into thinking that a, the fox is actually the king. And he says, this is basically what Gnostics do. They read the Old Testament, they read the New Testament, and what is already one cohesive narrative and clear, good image of a king, Jesus Christ, if you like. Um, and, and then uh, what they do is they break it all apart, and they give you what is actually a fox or a dog, and they tell you it's Jesus Christ, um, yeah. which is a fascinating metaphor. Yeah, I, I thought he also had an amazing an argument argument by analogy in uh, chapter nine and it was the the fourth paragraph of chapter nine where similarly he talks about like what if we took a verse from homer and i told you you know sections of the verse all applied to this one person he goes because i just completely ripped it out of context he said that's what these guys are doing because if you actually go and read homer you know that this actually is referencing several people and it's referencing different characters in the Homeric uh, mythology. So it's, yeah, it was like, he even just gave you a practical example by analogy from a text that they would all know. And I, d I thought that was actually a really good argument in general. But. I would like to piggyback off of that and jump into book two really quickly. And I think this pertains to stuff that we've brought up before. I know, Chad, you and I have had discussions on it. And that is his view of scripture. Like, mm. that is how to interpret scripture, which really, I don't think, has been covered by any theologians we've read up until this point. And by that, I don't mean that these theologians aren't reading Scripture a certain way. They definitely have an interpretive scheme. I only mean to say that they don't describe that interpretive scheme. Irenaeus is the first person who says, look, you're supposed to read the Bible a certain way, right? However, 
I don't think what he says is incredibly helpful. <laughs> like in the sense that he says something, but it's not super helpful because what he basically says is in chapter uh, 27 of book two, he essentially says, uh, these things kind of halfway through the first paragraph are such as fall plainly under our observation and are clearly and unambiguously in express terms set forth in the sacred scriptures. And he goes on a little bit further. He says, to apply expressions that are not clear or evident to interpretations of the parables, uh, such as one discovers for himself an inclination leads him, basically says that's bad. So essentially, he says the scriptures are clear and evident. That is, it's obvious what they're trying to say. Um, so don't try to finagle and twist them to come up with these really deep, interesting, super hyper-spiritualized interpretations like the Gnostics do. Um, why I said it's not super helpful is saying something as clear as subjective. I mean, it might seem clear to him, but that doesn't mean it's clear to everybody else. And there are certainly scriptures that I've seen people say, well, this is clear, and I'm and I, I'm thinking, no, it's not clear. It's actually incredibly problematic. I think I think then by the just just the essence of parables is they are ambiguous. Yes, actually, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, Being a parable itself makes it actually unclear. That's yeah. the whole. Yeah, I mean that's kind of why it's yeah that's why Jesus says whoever has ears let them hear. I mean that no. was that was kind of the spirit behind that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it seems as if there is general consensus reached on parables, I suppose. But but you're right. He, he kind of says, look, don't just invent your own God, essentially, from a parable, if it, especially if it contradicts God as already revealed in Scripture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so he, I mean, um, in Book 2, Chapter 10, uh, 1, um, he says, um, no question is resolved by another question. Intelligent people do not resolve one ambiguity through another, nor an enigma through a greater one. Such matters find revolutions out of what is evident, consistent, and clear. Now, we might argue again what is clear and evident. I think consistent I could, has a little more traction. But yeah. he, is try, uh, he is trying to help us find a way to... Um, this was a principle that I was always taught. Um, and you know, when I, I remember ninth grade, um, here's a shout out to, uh, Nick Nichols, my ninth grade, uh, new Testament teacher. Um, but he used to tell us that you interpret passages that you don't understand with ones that are clear or ones that are more frequent. Um, and so the stuff that's repeated the most is probably the most important and might be the most clear. And then you use that to understand uh, the the more ambiguous stuff. And that seems to be something that uh, like what Irenaeus is saying. Um, yeah. I, I would also add too. so just you mentioning a principle that your ninth grade teacher taught you. I, I don't remember the first one who taught me this, but also, right. I mean, you have that interpret scripture with scripture. The idea being uh, don't, allow an inconsistency, try to find a way to reconcile it. Like you see a passage, it seems to be in tension with another, find out what, you know, how these can fit together. Those are both principles that I definitely learned early on. And it does seem like he's basically advocating those principles. I would say, I think Irenaeus's vocabulary uh, isn't quite developed enough to talk about it in the way we might, not in the sense that he doesn't 
that he has poor vocabulary. He has a, a rich vocabulary. But in the sense that I don't think the study of hermeneutics, which is the process of interpreting the Bible, I don't think it had been around long enough. I don't think enough people had written about it and talked about it. So he didn't have the terminology that we have, if that makes sense. Like, um, you know, he, he didn't have a specific school of thought he could reference about how to interpret the Bible. I guess that's what uh, I'm trying to say. Well, and this is one deeper question that I, I would like to study more in depth, but is this question of the rule of faith or the rule of truth? He also says, what is it, it he is actually referring to? I think Irenaeus has something different in mind than scripture itself. I think it's a principle that he uses as a way to understand the overall trajectory of scripture. Um, like I said, I, I think it's something like that summary I gave. And then he uses that as a, as a sort of cool key to unlock um, all of scripture. But even if that's not the case, I would say the, the, what that parable to me of the king and the fox, like if you take an image of a king, you break it down into a fox and say the fox is the king, all of that turns on knowing what the king looks like. Right. So yeah. the and and so how do we know what the king looks like? Well, if you're in Irenaeus's world, I mean, you have scripture, you have uh, the bishops and you have the gathering of the church. Um, and so what takes place in the liturgy? And we've not talked a lot. I mean, we talked occasionally about liturgy, um, but for the early Christians, you know, that was for a lot of them. That was the most important engagement they had with God was through the reading of scripture through the hearing, through hearing the bishop speak, through taking communion, through being baptized, through all of these rituals that we still perform. And so somehow you, you have, in order to know who God is, you have to partake in all of the Christian life. Um, and each one of those things is a way that a way of demonstrating who God is so that you can see God for who he is. Then when someone tries to give you a picture that's false you can recognize it and say, well, that doesn't look like the king that I know, um, yeah. which so it's it's inherently circular. I recognize like I'm not saying that this is logically convincing to an atheist. But on the other hand, I mean, that's why there's a fullness to the Christian life that's not just purely intellectual. Yeah. Which is the point he makes. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I, you know, I'll expand on that. You know, he actually talks about um, kind of what he describes as being almost looking at simple mindedness, almost as a virtue, if you will. Um, uh, I'm trying to find the passage here. Yeah. Learning. Yeah. So it's in chapter 26 of book two. He quotes the passage uh, that, you know, from Paul, from first Corinthians um, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And he says, it is therefore better and more profitable to belong to the simple and unlettered class and by means of love to attain to nearness to God than by imagining ourselves learned and skillful. I I love this because, you know, you often hear the criticism and frankly, Chad is kind of funny with given the meme you posted today on our, um, on our website, right. About, you know, Christians kind of taking it on the chin because of our inability to think or because we run from thinking um, because we often default to a, look, you can't resolve everything by reason type of response. And, you know, I myself, I'm a fan of reason. I'm a fan of thinking through things. I, I, I want to pursue the question as far as it will go. But I think 
that here, I, and by the way, I should add, I think Irenaeus does too. I think Irenaeus is a, a philosopher in that sense. Oh, yeah. But what I think he's doing here is he's saying, look, sometimes when you're super smart, your mind goes crazy places and it just thinks. And sometimes you come up with really crazy ideas. And the reality is, I mean, you know, all three of us studied philosophy. There are a lot of philosophers that I really respect that I think were, as Trevor would say, wicked smart. (laughs) (laughs) But they come up with kooky, crazy stuff that everybody knows isn't true. David Lewis. David Lewis. He's the greatest (laughs) philosopher of my generation, and he believes the wackiest stuff. Modal realism? (laughs) Yeah. Somewhere there's a donkey wearing a party hat. (laughs) Every possible world exists. Somewhere I'm Superman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the donkey's flying. I don't know. Add something to it. (laughs) Um. I do love the David Lewis story, and as I've been friends with Tom going on four years now, I've heard the David Lewis story a few times. It's still good. Um, (laughs) It's still good. Uh, But, uh, you know, I guess we're we're running short on some time here. I know, Tom, you got to get going. By the way, we have a few more minutes because I texted the guy, so I'm going to show up a little bit late because we started. Okay, well, there's a line in here – that um, my one of my theology professors at Princeton, Dr. Hunsinger, would always quote. Um, it's from Book Two, uh, ch- uh, Chapter Thirteen, Number Four. Um, but he uh, he talked about God. God is still above this, and therefore ineffable. Um, he is called the all-embracing mind, but unlike the human mind, and most justly called light, but light in no way resembling the light that we know. Um, and this is an important uh, thing for Bart, actually. So, in, but for Carl Bart, who uh, is going to come along in uh, ten years when we get to uh, theology of the twentieth century? Yeah, look, ten years if we're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he, but God is like light, but unlike any light that we know. Um, and so we, you know, I think this is ultimately well. I was going to go off on a tangent that probably doesn't matter. But anyway, it's a famous line that is used often to talk about, um, you know, this difference, this chasm that ex- the, this chasm that exists between us and God, right? Um, he is like light. We can see light, uh, but he's still unlike any light that we know. And so, you know, sort of nature can only get you so far into comprehending uh, the ineffable God who is above it all. I mean, um, it also reminds me of Augustine, uh, who says, "Si tu comprehendes non es Deus," right? So if you understand it, then it's not God. But there are just some really rich lines that that I've heard repeated in theological studies uh, that that I just thought I would throw out. Yeah, I'm not sure. Again, it's hard. You know, I, I think often in terms of Caleb, you know, in the conversation. Would he be convinced that, um, you know, God is like light, but unlike any light that we know? Is that helpful to him? Maybe not. Uh, But I I still, I don't know. It's still a trope that comes out a lot in theology. In general, I just wanted to say something about book two, since we've mostly discussed book one stuff. Uh, Book two, I thought, was kind of better than book one in the sense that I didn't have to read about like 30 generations of eons and <laughs> the really complex genealogy. But also there was a lot of stuff that um, kind of modern philosophers of religion, uh, especially in the Western tradition, um, 
have already gone through a lot of it, just kind of explaining the, uh, for example, in chapter one, he, he kind of just goes through the inconsistency of polytheism uh, as he sees the Gnostic view being basically a version of polytheism. Uh, you know, in chapter two, he actually explains kind of once again, using logic and how it needs to be logically consistent. Why, for example, you know, angels couldn't be the creators of the world. Um, he, he does another, which he does in an argument by basically giving us a disjunctive syllogism. Uh, he does the same thing in uh, chapter three, why the Demiurge couldn't, and he uses kind of platonic ideas here, and even, I think, probably even modern kind of conceptions of, like, the philosophy of mind and things, where he goes about saying, how could uh, a god create something that isn't a concept in his mind and would have to be possessed by this other god, and so it's actually some very deep, rational, philosophical, like, pretty hardcore critiques. Like, a lot of it's just straight-up knockdown arguments, too. Like, uh, you know, especially when he goes about using the principle of omnipresence to kind of refute a lot of these Gnostic teachings since he believes, look, you can't even say uh, any of your gods are really gods since literally they're going to just even compete for space in a practical sense. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it, it's really interesting. I thought it was just a really good, um, I guess, yeah, exposition of their view and then just kind of just domination of uh, their ideas by argument. I mean, it was, I thought it was relentless and like actually really well done, but um, just kind of showing the inconsistencies in Gnosticism. Yeah, so, you know, I, I'd like to add to that. You know, he really does, Irenaeus, you can tell, is really uh, fundamental in kind of laying out just the basics of traditional theism, largely because of his arguments against Gnosticism. Um, he, he, he refers to the propater, the highest god of the Gnostics, and he goes, look, you have to ask yourself a couple of questions. Is this highest god omnipresent, like you said? Yeah. Because if he was, then how do the other gods, where are they at? Because this guy's <laughs> supposed to be everywhere. But if he's not, then there must be something outside of him. Uh, he also talks about rankings. Like, he says, is there something higher than the propater? Because there's certainly things, these things that are lower um, and they're all like him. So is there something above him that's like him? I mean, he raises a lot of these questions, and from it he forms a traditional theistic view where he says, since God is all mind, all reason, all active spirit, all light, and always exists one and the same, as it is both beneficial for us to think of God and as we learn regarding him from the scriptures. Um, he also describes God as simple. That is yeah. not a not a complex being, but a simple being. And for our listeners, don't misunderstand that. He doesn't mean he's easy to figure out or something along those lines. It means that he doesn't have he's not he's not a conjunction of various beings. And okay. unlike the Gnostic gods, which in which you have thirty gods, uh, so to speak. Um, so he really he really sets out like a philosophical notion mm-hmm. of kind of the traditional theist mm-hmm. position. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and all, you know, every time that we look at one of these um, early theologians, um, it's it's sort of, I mean, to me, it's interesting to think, uh, well, looking backwards um, and also sort of thinking with them forwards, you can see where they're going to have a hard time and why there's so much discussion about sort of solidifying Trinitarian theology 
um, the two natures of Christ, this sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of places they don't want to go. Try theism. Um, and the, the, you know, maybe even just the simply simple rational problem of having multiple gods. Um, and so, you know, you can see why he doesn't want to go there yet. I mean, why he can't, why they can't go there. Um, and, and a point that maybe we've made, but I'll make again so often what is, I mean, so often what uh, sharpens the mind and sharpens the thought is having a, an interlocutor, having a, an opponent, having someone else to discuss with who doesn't agree with you. Um, yeah. And so they don't agree with the Gnostics. So then they go, oh, I see you think this. I don't agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Now let me try to figure out what I do believe uh, yeah. because I recognize it's not what you think. And, you know, I mean, it, it comes off harsh sometimes in Irenaeus's thought but again, I actually think it's more understandable given that like it's his people who are losing their money to these guys who might be – these guys are preying upon women um, apparently if Irenaeus is correct. Um, you could understand why all of this really matters. Look, I don't agree with you philosophically and your philosophic and theological positions are leading you to exploit people. Mm-hmm. So um, – you know, like, to, you know, nowadays I like talking with people I don't agree with, you know, not because I think that they might exploit people who are my students or something, uh, but just because it'll sharpen my thought. And you can see that happening, too. But there yeah. are other reasons why I can be kinder in my uh, in my conversations. But Irenaeus really has something at stake. Well, that's why I think it's so important that we f- revive intelligent intellectual discourse in the world, right? I mean, political discourse is not helpful today. It's just a bunch of slogans and super um, uh, simplifications of really nuanced things. Um, Or, you know, internet conversations are really not super helpful. I mean, intelligent discourse between people of different views, you know, that's what, in fact educates us and trains us and helps us to think and helps us to sharpen our own views. And the history of Christian theology is a history of Christianity being defined because of opposition, right? It's because there are other views coming in. And just as an individual, we should want that, right? I mean, we should, we should want to be talking with people who don't agree with us because on the one hand, that's how we spread our ideas, which is kind of an essential part of Christianity, spreading our idea. But also, it is how we form and and how we uh, kind of make, you know, how we develop our ideas and our views. Because it's not like, oh, once we've read the Ten Commandments or the Apostles' Creed or something like that, we just know everything there is to know, and now there's nothing else to learn. We're just waiting until we go to heaven or whatever. By the way, and I know because we're really short on time, there are like three things I really wanted to still talk about with no time left. I wanted to briefly just throw them out there just something to think about. We can reference later, but one is the Gnostics set up this notion of kind of three materials in the universe. Maybe material is the wrong word, but there's matter, the flesh, but then there's also what they call the animal. And then there's the spirit, which is the highest. And they would say a human being is made up of all three of those. That is matter, our physical body, the animal soul, which was like the seat of our passions and our feelings and our, you know, that part of us. And then our reason, which is what enables us to engage philosophically and to think rationally. I only mention that because that tripartite breakdown 
becomes a way that Christians would actually divide the human mind for some time. Like that was a way, or the human being, that became the kind of foundation for thinking of, of a human being as having body, soul, and spirit, three different uh, portions. So I thought that was interesting. The soul, the, just real quick, the yeah, soul is the important one there. Animal being somewhat differ, difficult um, of a connection, but it's it's uh, it's suche in the Greek there. I mean, it is psychic. It or you know is the I mean is a transliteration or not a transliteration, a direct um, uh, cognate. Um, you know, as much as animal in an older translation. But anyway, um, psychic is and spirit. Uh, and and matter. So yes, I mean the animal part might might be a bit misleading. Well, the reason why they say animal soul in the translations I read anyway is to try to let you know what it is is apart from the spirit. Mm-hmm. The idea being that the soul on the Gnostic view is what we share with the animals, right? So that was why that term was used, a way of kind of helpful distinction. I think not yeah. in the word perhaps or not the you know not there originally, but I think it was meant to be a helper. The other thing, the other thing I really wanted to make sure that we hit on, which we don't have any time and really, is Gnostics had this very distinct view of what happens after you die. That when you die, you could go to any of a number of places, number of places. If you attain the highest level of knowledge, though, your spirit goes up to the realm of the gods, up to the realm of the eons with the Father, right? Um and Justin comes in, or not Justin, Irenaeus comes in and says, look, you guys are wrong. Resurrection is the ultimate end of the human, for uh, the Christian. We are not destined for our spirits to leave and to go be in the realm of the gods. And he actually describes a human as a complete being. He says, we're a complete being. We can't do good works without our bodies. So it's not just the mind that is going to be redeemed but the body is going to be redeemed. And that's why the Christian doctrine has always been that there will in fact be a resurrection of the dead when new bodies, uh, maybe not, they will be new, but it's going to be like a a resurrected body from our old body. That's who we're going to be in eternity, not a disembodied spirit floating around in the heavens. Um, He also acknowledged an intermittent state. That is that when you die, your soul or spirit can be disconnected from the body for a season, for a period of time until the resurrection comes. So I, I just thought that was interesting that you find those those particular doctrines. Uh, I think it might be in book three when we get there, but he actually even goes back to Paul and uses the number one passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, one of the most difficult passages where oftentimes people will argue for an essentially what I would say Platonist or Gnostic view where it's only the soul that is resurrected. He actually, taking from Paul, says, no, if you read this properly, you will see that Paul means physical resurrection, uh, bodily resurrection. Um, which is curious uh, because, like I say, like well, like you say, I know a lot of Christians who think, no, no, we're just talking about a soul resurrection. That's Platonism. Yeah. Um, Christ- <laughs> or Gnosticism. Um, or Gnosticism. Yeah. yeah. Christianity believes physical resurrection. Um, blame, he- blame C.S. Lewis for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. although there is Neoplatonism in the church before Lewis. True, true, true. <laughs> well, and. Uh, the whole time I had N.T. Wright's, you know, resurrection of the son of God in the back of my head. Um, And he doesn't use, uh, Irenaeus doesn't employ the same uh, argument that 
N.T. Wright does, but I mean, they ultimately have this draw the same conclusion. Yeah. Cool. Well, cool. All right. Um, that's good enough for me. Thank you for listening to A History of Christian Theology. I hope you'll come back with us next week as we look at books 3, 4, and 5 of Irenaeus. Please also check out our Facebook page at, a, a his, at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. See you next week.